This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Villanova community and the many departments that Mark just mentioned, mentioned a few, uh, for their support of the workshop and specifically Amanda and Chechen, the co-directors of the Philosophy um, Graduate Student Union, for their taking care of the organizational and logistical, logistical matters. Um, just let me get a feel for the, the terrain. How, how many people are students here? Students. And then faculty? Okay, very good. All right, so I just want to say something publicly. I actually, um, I actually thought that, um, I'm going to disclose something about Mark that I didn't tell him when he was driving me over here, but I thought he was a brother. Um, he reviewed one of my books. I didn't tell you that earlier. But, um, so I just want to say publicly that I'm now adopting him as a, an honorary homeboy, right? <laughs> Although he doesn't come from North Philly, I'm going to adopt him as a homeboy, North Philly homeboy. Anyway, okay. So when it comes to race, and I'm going to move through this fairly quickly, right? I don't want to make it too boring, right? When it comes to race, Eric Holder, our first African-American attorney general, put it correctly when he said in 2009, quote, uh, though this nation has proudly thought of itself as an ethnic melting pot, in things racial, we have always been, and we continue to be in too many ways, essentially a nation of cowards, end quote. So in matters of race, we are weaklings, quitters, deserters, runaways. This is why I argue that paresia, which is a notion that I've talked about earlier, which means courageous speech or fearless speech, is so important. But along with fearless speech, we need fearless or courageous listening, which I see as an openness to have one's assumptions shattered, one's self fissured to have one's self touched to the point of perhaps vertigo and even perhaps crisis. Part of courageous speech in philosophy is to be a troublemaker, a contemporary gadfly. Being a troublemaker involves risk. As for academics, by troublemaker, I don't mean being clever or showing us how good you are at refuting the arguments of your colleagues. In fact, being a troublemaker has less to do with you and more to do with others. I know about risk and the failure for others to listen courageously. For an example, I recently published a piece on Trayvon Martin in the New York Times in a section called The Stone, where philosophers get to write. And there was this one uh, personal message that was sent to me uh, to my university address, uh, which read, quote, your stock in trade is white guilt. Your vision of justice is payback. Whitey is the cause of all your problems. You peddle your racist hatred. And, and that makes you a racist, the very evil you accuse me of. I read your screed on a summer's eve. You write like one. There's a special place in hell for those that lead others astray. Say hi to, Jet, to Ted Kennedy and Hitler when you get there." End quote. So there you have it. I don't think that's vulnerability, right? We can, we can talk about that later. Franz Fanon, author of Black Skin, White Masks, says, quote, I want my voice to be harsh. I don't want it to be beautiful. I don't want it to be pure." End quote. Fanon is saying that he doesn't want his voice to make you feel good at the end of the day, right? As I might put this, I don't want you to leave here thinking that Yancey somehow put us at ease, made us feel good, feel good about ourselves and our efforts as particularly white people, or that Yancey has somehow given us hope. That's too easy. 
We need something far more dangerous, something far more disconcerting, unnerving, alarming, traumatic, and perhaps even a bit haunting, etymologically, to frequent. It seems to me that what I'm suggesting here is compatible with Parisia, or fearless speech. So in this talk, I will deliberately enact courageous speech to challenge what I see as a certain species of purity in academic discourse. So if your sensibilities are offended, let's talk about that. My sense is that we need more exposure to the funk of life, the stench of human existence. In fact, my sense is that the choice of one's discourse in the classroom can actually avoid the funk of life, crisis and alarm. You see, when it comes to discussing issues regarding race and racism in the classroom, we mustn't be like Odysseus, who dared to be adventurous and yet remained safe. We must allow the sirens to sing to us without the safety of a mast, without plugging up our ears with wax. When it comes to intimate and courageous discussions regarding race, how it is lived and how it is experienced and how it is avoided, we ought to allow for the strength of what might be called the aleatoric the unpredictable spaces of openness to fracture calcified norms and unproductive sedimented practices. We must be daring, we must be vulnerable, which means that we must be open to be wounded, we must be open to be touched, indeed we must be open to die. To die to our stubbornness, to die to our epistemological ignorance, to die to our arrogance, to die to our narcissism, to die to our color evasion, to die to all of those tricks that we play to convince ourselves that we are just fine that we are the good ones. Part of what fuels courageous speech, or so I would argue, is also linked to our finitude, our knowledge that we can't stay here forever, that someday all of this will be gone, at least for you and for me. Yet there is something that can be gotten from this sense of finitude. It is that sense of urgency. So I have a small task I want you guys to engage in. I want you to just look at each other. <laughs> yeah, really look at each other. I know it's kind of hard. Okay, keep looking. Okay, that's fine. Okay, you guys, stop, stop looking. Um, having looked at each other, right, keep in mind that 100 years from now, pretty much, I'm, well, maybe with the exception of one, possibly, but pretty much 100 years from now, uh, we can be pretty sure that none of us in this room will be here, will be alive, right? So just drink that in. Uh, so it seems to me that what we do between birth and the grave is so incredibly vital. Because at some point, as philosopher Cornel West is fond of saying, we'll be the culinary delight of terrestrial worms. Right? West sees this as a very funky place. Right? Just as our being born between urine and feces is also a very funky place. Unless, of course, there were any C-section babies here. Any? Okay, you guys missed out on the funk. Uh, Sorry about that. So this moment of looking at each other is something that I remind my students to do in class. I do it partly because students don't really look at each other, not really, right? They're generally facing the front, facing me. But I want them to feel the finitude and sense the face of the other, to see the face of the other, in this case their fellow students, and to see in that face the overpowering inevitability of death, to feel the reality that this face might be gone, perhaps forever in the history of this universe. The exercise is not, is not about nihilism. It's not about playing jokingly with our human condition. 
but it's about creating in my students a sense of shared vulnerability and thereby a shared sense of commonality. My aim is to give them a sense that we are in this existential journey together, inseparable. White students. My white students are always reminding me that they are not racists. We've made progress, they say. We're not like our parents and grandparents. We live in a post-race society in which you can be whatever you want to be if you only try hard enough. So when it comes to race and racism, most if not all of my white students claim to know about the absence of their own racism. They are certain that they are not racists. They are, in short, at peace with who they are. Yet, I would argue that they are at peace within the context of actually perpetuating racism. As the so-called good whites, they believe that they are already positioned beyond the muck and mire of contemporary forms of white racism. Indeed, there are many of my white students who give the impression that they were born from the head of a god, like Athena from the head of Zeus, fully mature and unscathed by the reality of racism, white racism. The challenge. I recently challenged some of my white students to keep a journal of examples of white racism that they encountered at home, at school, within the context of everyday conversations. Many of them were pretty sure that their journals would be sparse, perhaps even empty. Toward the end of the semester, all of my white students were deeply shocked. In fact, by the end of the semester, they had to question their own sense of certainty about the non-existence of their own white racism. Some came away deeply troubled by the awareness that white racism is, white racism is front and center within their families, social groups, within their dorms, and indeed in themselves. Okay, here are five recent examples that I'd like to share. There are five entries. First white student, quote, the first day back from spring break, we had a new student move in. When my other floor mates came and noticed this, one ran down the hallway, possibly inebriated, screaming, there's a nigger on the floor, guys, watch your stuff, end quote. My question is, if you're black, have you ever been looked upon suspiciously as if you were a thief, a criminal, as you were minding your own business? Second white student, quote, one white guy told me his secret thoughts while he was boxing. He said that he always imagined his white girlfriend being banged by some really black guy and that this made him so pissed that he could go all out in boxing, end quote. My question is, if you're a black male, what is it about banging a white girl that, put, that puts white guys in a state of frenzy? Dare I say, does it have something to do with fear of the big black penis? Third white student, quote, when I was on the elevator, I realized that a black man and woman walked into the elevator with me. I was clutching my bag close to my body and moved it to the shoulder away from them. I had no reason to clutch my bag other than the fact that they were black." End quote. My question is, if you're black, have you ever had the experience where white people clutch their bags when they see you approaching? Fourth white student, quote, I went to get my nails done with one of my friends, and while we were picking out our nail polished colors, I asked her what she thought of a dark purple. Jokingly, she said, quote, that that dark of a nail polish would make my nails look like nigger nails, end quote. My question is, if there exist nigger nails, then what about nigger teeth, nigger breath, nigger sweat, nigger hair, nigger feet, nigger food, nigger sex, nigger moms, Nigger dads and nigger babies, nigger churches, nigger clothes, nigger love, nigger lips. Nigger talk, nigger walk, nigger jokes, no good niggers, nigger this, nigger that. Nigger politicians, 
and dare I say, our nigger president. Fifth and last white student, quote, one white girl was talking about why she could not date a black guy, and she mentioned the black hands. She said, when they turn over their hand, that it is really gross. They look like gorilla hands, end quote. These are contemporary white students. My question is, why are black people still depicted as monkeys in 2012, 2013? Clicking sounds. The sounds of car doors locking are deafening. Click, 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 click. The clicking sounds are always already accompanied by white nervous gestures and eyes that want to look but are afraid and hesitant to do so. The clicks ensure their safety, effectively re-signifying their white bodies as in need of protection vis-a-vis -vis the sight of danger, death, doom, blackness. In fact, the clicks begin to return me to myself as this dangerous beast, a phantom, rendering my body the site of microtomy and volatility. The clicks attempt to seal my identity as a dark savage. The clicking sounds mark me, they inscribe me, rematerializing my presence, as it were, in ways that I know to be untrue, in ways that are not me. Unable to stop the clicking, unable to stop white women from tightening the hold of their purses as I walk by, unable to stop white women from crossing to the other side of the street once they have seen me walking in their direction, unable to stop white men from looking several times over their shoulders as I walk by, minding my own business, unable to establish a form of recognition that creates a space of trust or liminality. There are times when I want to become their fantasy, their black monster, their boogeyman. In the case of the clicks, I want to pull open the car door and shout, surprise, you've just been carjacked by a ghost, a fantasy of your own creation. Now get the hell out of the car. But of course, this act of agency, this act of protest, would simply reinforce the racist stereotype of the black male as brutal and violent. But what if the clicking sounds could speak? What would they communicate to me? What would they say? Click nigger, click nigger, click nigger, click nigger, click click nigger nigger, click 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 nigger nigger nigger, click 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 click, nigger 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 nigger. The clicking sounds would begin to fragment my existence, cut away at my integrity, depicting me in the form of an essence, a solid type. Click thug, click criminal, click thief, click danger, click hypersexual, click predator, click violent, click wild, click primitive, click angry, click savage, click rapist. I am on the receiving side of the clicks, and yet those whites in their cars, through their sheer act of locking their car doors, perform their white identities in need of safety, in need of protection. The clicks signify multiple layers of their identity. Click, white, click, click, white, white, click, 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 white, 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 click, pure, click, innocent, click, good, click, law-abiding, click, vulnerable, click, decent, click, click, threaten, click, pray, click, better than, click, epistemically credible, click, Civilized, click, persons as such, click, human. Bless you. Yet, I want to ask the question, how does it feel to be a white problem? Rethinking the term nigger through the process of reversal, black literary figure James Baldwin asks, quote, but if I am not the nigger, and if it's true that your invention reveals something about you, then who is the nigger? James Baldwin goes on to say, I give you your problem back. You're the nigger, baby. It isn't me. As long as whites see themselves as normative and I am different qua nigger, 
Discourse about my personhood will function as a cover, a farce, a mere empty gesture. Baldwin's point forces us to ask the question, will the real niggers please stand up? Not only are the bodies that initiate the cliques performing their white identities through the cliques, but the cliques themselves install white identities, interpolate. And by the way, if there are any terms here that you want to ask me about, feel free. Because philosophers have their own little tricky discourse, right? Interpolate or hail white identities and solidify white identities. The cliques are not isolated, pure auditory data, but markers of social meaning, signifiers of regulated space, forms of disciplining, disciplining bodies, and part of a racial and racist web of significance that bespeaks the sedimentation of white racist history and racist iteration. Yet, as suggested, the cliques, they misidentify me. The cliques dematerialize me, only to rematerialize me in a form that I do not recognize. Black cultural theorist Du Bois argues that for those blacks who have given thought to the situation of black people in America, they will often ask themselves, what after all am I? What after all am I? Through an uneventful mundane act of white index fingers locking their car doors, click, click, the color line is drawn. After so many clicks on so many occasions, I am installed as a stranger to myself, forcing a peculiar question. Where is my body? I'm assuming that women will be able to relate to this. The question, where is my body vis-a-vis -vis the industry of pornography? The question itself makes sense once the body is theorized, not as a brute race extensa, using the language of Descartes, but as a site of confluent norms as that whose meaning is a function of a complex interpretive and perceptual process. I am not a criminal, a beast, waiting to attack white people. Hence, their sense of safety is a fabrication. They have created a false dichotomy, an outside, the blacks, as opposed to the inside, the whites. But what if that inside, that feeling of safety, that fabricated space, is a construction that is parasitic upon the false construction of the black body as dangerous? If so, then their sense of themselves as safe is purchased at the expense of the possibility for a greater, more robust sense of human community or mitzvah. They have cut themselves off from the possibility of fellowship, of expanding their identities, of reaping the rewards of being touched by the black other and thereby shaking the boundaries of their white selves. To live a life predicated upon a lie often requires more lies to cover it over. Black bodies then function to conceal the truth that so many whites lead lives that are constructed around a profound deception. Namely, white people need protecting from black people, specifically. The need for this lie bespeaks a white self that is on the very precipice of ontological evisceration. Race as lived. There's been a great deal of important work that argues that race is semantically empty, ontologically bankrupt, and scientifically meaningless. In short, there are many philosophers who argue that race is an illusion, that there is no factual support for racial taxonomy. Since race has no referent and does not cut at the joints of reality, so to speak, it is said to be a fiction. From this, we are advised to abandon the concept of race, just as the concepts of phlogiston and spontaneous generation were also abandoned. It is important to note, however, that to believe that there is no more to be said about race because it is impossible to reduce it to a naturally occurring object in the spatial temporal world is to engage in a form of disciplinary hegemony. My sense is that it is at the lived level of lived density, the lived density of race, that so much more work needs to be done. 
It is at this level where the funkiness of race and racism resides. Indeed, I've known whites who are staunchly against the claim that the concept of race cuts at the joints of reality, yet how they live their race, how they live their own racism, is unmistakable. I was once being interviewed by a white philosopher, white philosopher for a job opening where the department was looking for someone whose areas of specialization were philosophy of race and African-American philosophy. I met with this one white male faculty member for an hour. The assumption was that we would spend time talking about what I would teach, what I desired to teach, my curriculum vitae, and so on. However, he spent the bulk of the time talking about his anti-racism. He also provided a personal narrative incident that was intended to demonstrate this. As I, as I recall, there was no questions about my pedagogy or my relatively extensive publication record. Here was a white philosopher who no doubt, if asked, would have said that the concept of race was scientifically vacuous and had no empirical referent in the natural world, that race is a mere social construction or social category. Yet, he felt the need to self-present as pure, as someone who was a good white, who was above the fray of racism and lived beyond the trappings of race matters. He used my presence, my presence, my hour, as a space for white confession and self-glorification. There he was, fully visible, in trails revealed, desiring that I spend my time bearing witness to his white purity so that I could state emphatically and unequivocally that he was one of the good guys. Yet he doth self-praise too much. I was unmoved by the implied dichotomy. He needed my approval and admiration. My black body, my presence functioned redemptively for him. In retrospect, I see with greater clarity. This was a situation that must be named. What white narcissism, what white hubris, look a white. Here was a case where my presence, my voice, my interior complexity had taken a back seat to his white narcissism. I was neither heard nor in some sense hearable. The fact is that whiteness as race continues to exist within the socially and existentially lived space of our everyday experiences. The reality of race then, though not a natural kind, is purchased within the, within the framework of what might be called a social ontology that recognizes the very serious persistence and implications of race beyond what might be called its ontological vacuity. My work theorizes and understands black embodiment within the context of white everyday power or hegemony. Within this context, the power of the white gaze, which is a structured way of seeing, is always already mediated by certain norms and values. Interpolated the black body as that which is epistemologically and ontologically given. This is a situation that involves the collapse of ontology and epistemology into each other without much slippage. What it, the black body, is and how it is known is constructed through gazes, bodily gestures, visual images, various representations, and discursive practices that have overdetermined its being and constructed it as a denigrated thing. Thing. Black body as thing. The use of thing here is more than a tropological reference, particularly when one thinks of the German philosopher Hegel. Has everybody heard of Hegel? Great. Hegel, who thought that black people did not possess what he called geist, or spirit. Hegel says, quote, nothing consonant with his humanity is to be found in his, the Negro's character, end quote. For Hegel, the Negro is an animal man, 
sensuous and without subjectivity, self-consciousness and the capacity of representation. This is why the Negro, or the black, is unable to represent, in an abstract sense, that human flesh is a body that is capable of psychological associations, and not simply an object of the senses, something to be eaten. In short, the black body has endured a process of both inscription and description, both terms intimately linked. Or think of the lynched black body, a thing in need of discipline. And I want you to think here in terms of overkill. For an example, in 1934, 23-year-old Claude Neal was accused of killing a white woman. And it is said that a confession was wrung out of him, meaning that it was forced, twisted, or strained out of him. In fact, it's my sense that I'm not sure if any of those blacks that were lynched were in fact guilty. Neil was taken from the jail cell where he was castrated. His penis was cut off and stuffed into his mouth. And he was made to say that he liked it. How you do that, I have no idea. Either, in either case. Second, his testicles were cut off and those too were then stuffed into his mouth and he was made to say that he liked those. Then there was a noose that was tied around his neck, which was occasionally sort of drawn tight. And then as he lost consciousness, it was loosened and the torturing would begin all over again. Occasionally they would slice off a finger. His sides were sliced and then pulled down, right? In a nearby town, 7,000 white people were waiting to get a sight of this body. Little white children had sharpened sticks. And when the, white, when the black body came around, they stabbed it. Right? So in many cases, you had white children at the, in the place, at the place of these lynchings, these spectacles. Right? Call it a site of pedagogy. He was eventually killed. Pictures were sold of his mutilated body, and other body parts were kept as prized possessions. In fact, Du Bois talks about this when he talks about Sam Hose and seeing knuckles, possibly seeing knuckles in a store of a black man. Well, think about the rape of enslaved black women's bodies that were said to be always sexually available, indeed, hypersexual essences, things, and thereby could not be raped. Such black bodies, the other of the second sex, were metaphorically open, always desiring to be taken. Black women's bodies might be said to be holes without bottoms, or perhaps just bottoms with holes. And if 1934 is too remote, to engender a sense of the gravity of the problem of how black bodies are treated as black things. Think of 1999 in New York when black male Amadou Diallo, a thing-like essence always already on the brink of violence, was shot at 41 times by white police officers and hit with 19 bullets as he reached for his, and I left that blank for you to supply, he reached for his wallet. Right? And according to ballistics, there were holes in his feet as well. So he was being shot even as he was falling backward. Or think of black male Abner Louima, who in 1997, who was handcuffed by white police officers as a stick was pushed into his rectum by a white police officer, and after which the handle was allegedly forced into his mouth. And the white police officer ran around the police station saying, this is how you break a man in. Right. What's going on there? Or think of Susan Smith, the white woman who, in 1994, drowned her four white children and blamed it on a black man. Or think of Charles Stewart, a white man who, in 1989, shot his own pregnant wife in the head and shot himself in the abdomen and then blamed it on a black man. The mantra, a black man did it, occludes knowing the other. 
He is already known and needs no nuanced introduction. Look, the nigger. Or think of Bill Bennett, former Secretary of Education under Reagan, and his remark where he said, quote, I do know that it's true that if you wanted to reduce crime, you could, if that were your sole purpose, you could abort every black baby in this country and your crime rate would go down, end quote. He then goes on to say how impossible, ridiculous, and morally reprehensible this would be, but yet true, he says. So while he clearly disagrees with the statistic, do you guys know about uh, Freakonomics? This is where this whole discussion came from. So while he's clearly, he clearly disagrees with the statistic that crime is down because abortion is up, he has no problem using the epistemic operator true vis-a-vis -vis the apparent necessary connection between aborting black babies and the decrease in the crime rate. Note that he says, I do know, he says. In short, Bennett knows that it is true that the category of blacks who are still in the womb will necessarily that's a strong term for philosophers, will necessarily commit crimes, and he knows this prior to their birth. Hence, in the name of a future that we cannot possibly predict, little Jamal, let us say, has already committed a crime. His body is already against the law, because Bennett knows that it is true that if he is aborted, our crime rate will go down. Here is a case where the black fetus is always already the very essence of criminality prior to its birth. This is not a case of three strikes and you're out, or even one strike and you're out. Presumably, all that is required for one to be out is to be a black thing. At the moment of conception, then, black life is already out. Here's a case where to be is the crime, and where the only solution is death. Well, what about being a black philosopher within a country and within academic contexts where black intelligence is denied, where, for example, I become standing before you a mere oxymoron, right? Something blatantly foolish, as a philosopher standing before you simply mimicking speech. Have you guys heard of David Hume? Yes? David Hume said of Negroes that they are parrots. We are tropical birds. Worse off than the poets critiqued by Plato, blacks even lack inspiration. In other words, black people can say intelligent things, but we don't comprehend what it is that we say. So a man who has knowledge has knowledge of something. That is to say of something that exists, for what does not exist is nothing. Thus knowledge is infallible, since it's logically impossible to be mistaken. Whereas opinions can be mistaken, because opinions can be of what both is and is not. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. All of our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle, life's a poor player. Poor player? Shadow? Anybody want to finish that for me? Poor player, shadow, struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale what? Told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. To be or not to be, that is the question, whether it's just moral in the mind. To suffer the slings of outrageous fortune or to take arms against the sea of trouble and by opposing in them. So what does that mean? The hell if I know. I'm a black guy. I'm a parent. Hume was right. So he then goes on to say how impossible. So that's why our, our other friend. Okay, good. So those are the quotes, right? That's what Hume tells us. The elevator scenario. Well-dressed, I enter an elevator where a white woman waits to reach her floor. She sees my black body, though not the same one I have seen reflected back to me from the mirror on any number of occasions. She sees a black body, as Robert Gulliam Williams would say, 
quote, supersaturated with meaning as they, black bodies, have been relentlessly subjected to negative characterization by newspapers, newscasters, popular film, television programming, public officials, policy pundits, and other agents of representation, end quote. Her body signifies, look, the black. On this score, though, short of a performative locution, her body language functions as an insult. Over and above my body, and how it is clothed, regardless of the fact that I wear a suit and tie, she sees a criminal. Indeed, she does not really see me. Rather, phenomenologically, she might be said to see a black fleeting expanse, a peripherally glimpsed vague presence of something dark, forbidden, and dreadful. Despite what I think about myself, how I am for myself, her perspective, her third-person account, seeps into my consciousness. I catch a glimpse of myself through her eyes, and just for that moment, I experience some form of double consciousness. But what I see does not shatter my identity or unglue my sense of moral decency. After all, from the perspective of white hegemony, hers is deemed the only real point of view. One might say that the white woman's consciousness of the meaning of my black body coincides with the meaning of the black body as such, and that from her perspective, there is no meaning that the black body possesses that is foreign to her. That is, a meaning that is capable of enlarging her field of consciousness or seeing. When she sees me, the symbolic order of blackness as evil is collapsed. I am evil. My blackness is the stimulus that triggers her response. The Negro, as Fanon notes, is a phobogenic object, a stimulus to anxiety. Her gaze is, as Judith Butler might say, quote, not a simple seeing, which is quite a profound quote, not a simple seeing, an act of direct direct perception, but the racial production of the visible, the workings of racial constraints on what it means to see, period, end quote. As black, I am the looked at. As white, she is the bearer of the white look. But note that I have not given my consent to have my body transformed, to have it reshaped and thrown back to me as something I am supposed to own, as a meaning I am supposed to accept. Then again, who does? And again, I want the, the, the women in the audience to think about that. In what ways do you experience your body thrown back to you in ways that you are supposed to own. She clutches her purse, eagerly anticipating the arrival of the floor, knowing that this black predator will soon strike. As she clutches her purse, I am reminded of the sounds of whites locking their car doors as they catch a glimpse of my black body as I walk, walk by. Click, click. She fears that a direct look might incite the anger of the black predator. She fakes a smile. By her smile, she hopes to elicit a spark of decency from me but I don't return the smile. I fear that I might, or that it might be interpreted as a gesture of sexual advance. After all, within the social space of the elevator, which has now become a hermeneutic transactional space within which all of my intended meanings get falsified, it is as if I am no longer in charge of what I mean or I intend. What she sees or hears is governed by a racist epistemology of certitude that places me under erasure. Her alleged literacy regarding the semiotics of my black body is actually an instance of profound illiteracy. Her gaze upon my black body might be said to function like a camera obscura. Her gaze in, consists of a racist socio-epistemic aperture, as it were, through which the white light of truth casts an inverted, distorted image. It is through her white gaze that I become hypervigilant of my own embodied spatiality. I don't know whether you guys jump on elevators. You guys do that? I still do that. I don't know. Great. Excellent. He does. Yeah. I do too. You and I have got some. 
the kid there, he said he does. I do too. It's an excellent thing to do. But in this case, I can't, right, obviously. So it's not an embodied spatiality of familiarity, right? On previous occasions, particularly when alone, I've moved my body within the space of the elevator in a non-calculative fashion, paying no particular attention to my bodily comportment, the movement of my hands, my eyes, the position of my feet. On such occasions, and you guys remember Heidegger here, my being in the space of the elevator is familiar. My bodily movements, my stance, are indicative of what it means to inhabit a space of familiarity. The movement away from the familiar is what is also affected vis-a-vis -vis the white woman's gaze. My movements become and remain stilted. I dare not move suddenly. The apparent racial neutrality of the space within the elevator when I was standing alone has now become one filled with white normativity and blackness. I feel trapped. I no longer feel bodily expansiveness within the elevator, but constrained. I now begin to calculate, paying almost neurotic attention to the proxemic positioning of my body making sure that this black object, what now feels like an appendage, a weight, is not too close, not too tall, not too threatening. So I genuflect, but only slightly, a movement that feels like an act of worship, which is quite incredible. My lived body comes back to me like something ontologically occurrent, something merely there in its facticity. Notice that she need not speak a word to render my black body captive. She need not scream, rape! She need not call me nigger. Indeed, it is not a necessary requirement that she hates me in order for her to script my body in the negative ways that she does. White America has bombarded me and other black males with the reality of our dual hypersexualization. You are a sexual trophy and yet a certain rapist. Fanon, aware of the horrible narrative myths used to depict black bodies, notes that the Negro is the genital, is the incarnation of evil, being that which is to be avoided and yet desired. Ritualistically enacting her racialized and racist consciousness embodiment, she reveals her putative racist narrative competence. As Fanon says, though, one cannot decently have a hard-on everywhere, yet within the white imaginary, I apparently fit the bill. To put a slight interpretive inflection on Fanon here, as the insatiable, ever-desiring black penis, a walking, talking hard-on, I am believed eager to introduce white women into a sexual universe for which the white male does not have the key, the weapons, or the attributes. I have a little note here that says, sorry guys. I am often reminded of my purpose, my racial teleology, that is my essence, through popular culture. I sit in movie theaters waiting for me to be seen on screen, waiting to see my body appear before me, which is a weird experience, to have you precede yourself. For an example, in the movie White Chicks, 2004, I am the character Latrell Spencer, who reminds white women, he says, you know what they say when you go black, and you guys fill that in? You never go black, no get back. He says when you go black, you're going to need a wheelchair. Get it? So I am, somebody said no? Oh. I am this sadistic black body in search of masochistic white female bodies. And in the movie, of course, there is this white woman who's being pulled up in a wheelchair, right? 
who wants more, apparently. I also saw myself in the movie The Heartbreak Kid in 2007, where a white woman who plays Ben Stiller's wife pleads with him while having sex. She shouts, fuck me like a black guy. One, of course, feels sorry for Stiller's character, as he really tries, with pronounced gyrations, to have sex with her like a black guy. But he does so to no avail and induce Bigelow, male gigolo, 1999. I was the black man who entered a closet with a white woman who was blind. After having sex with me, or having sex with her, not only does she miraculously gain sight, but she says, quote, I knew you were black, end quote. Here, the black male penis reveals its multiple talents. Not only is it capable of temporarily crippling white women and confining them to wheelchairs, while of course rendering extreme pleasure, but the black penis is also capable, apparently, of healing the blind. The white gaze has fixed me, like looking into Medusa's eyes. I have been made into stone, stiff, ever erect. It is as if Viagra naturally runs through my veins. In fact, I have become a phantasm. So fictive has the black body become that its very material presence has become superfluous. There are times when the black body is not even needed to trigger the right response. All that is needed is the imago. Fanon observed, quote, a white prostitute told me that in her early days, the mere thought, the mere thought of going to bed with a Negro brought on an orgasm, end quote. While actual black bodies suffered during the spectacle of lynchings, one wonders to what extent the black body as phantasmatic object was the fulcrum around which the spectacle was animated. Within the lived and consequential semiotic space of the elevator, the white woman has taken my body from me, which I consider to be an act of violence, sending an extraneous meaning back to me, an extraneous thing, something foreign. What then am I to do? Within this racially saturated field of visibility, I have now somehow become this predator stereotype from which it appears hopeless to escape. The white woman thinks that her act of seeing me is an act of knowing what I am, of knowing what I will do next. That is, hers is believed to be simply a process of unmediated, uninterrupted perception. However, her coming to see me as she does is actually a cultural achievement. So white perception is a historical and cultural achievement. It is an achievement that not only distorts my body, but also distorts her white body. I am, as it were, a phantom, indeed a spook, that, lived between, that lives between the interstices of my physical, phenotypically dark body and the white woman's gesticulatory performances. She performs, ergo, I become the criminal. Okay, before I conclude, I want you guys to take a look at these. They'll be handed out. So I'll talk about these in just a second. This in just a second. <laughs> Maybe next time I'll have these handed out first time. But you know, philosophy is really serious when you have handouts like this, right? And an image like that—that's like serious philosophy, guys. Okay. So I just want you to look at this. This is my amateurish uh, attempt to, to, to diagram what's going on in the elevator. Um, 
So I've developed this notion called M-Crow, right? So my argument is that when she comes on the elevator, this is kind of what happens. And it's not necessarily serial, meaning it, it, mythos doesn't have to happen first and then codification. They're kind of working all at once, right? A wonderful example of this M-Crow is when Cornell West was, um, uh, was uh, riding in Princeton one day. A white police officer accused him of, of trafficking cocaine. Everybody knows who Cornell West is? Accused him of trafficking cocaine. And he says, hey, look. I'm not trafficking cocaine, I'm a professor of religion. And the police officer said, yeah, and I'm the flying nun. Let's go nigger. And threw his ass in the car, in the cop car, right? So this is, this is mythos happening here, right? What, what is the, is, are you guys familiar with, with the flying nun? Anybody? Who is it played by? Sally, Sally Field. It's a sitcom. So what is the white police officer saying? Really quickly, somebody tell me. Yeah, and I'm the flying nun. Let's go nigger. What is he saying? He's saying, if you're a professor of religion, then I'm the flying nun. And since I know I'm not the flying nun, you can't be a professor of religion because it's oxymoronic, right? You can't be that thing, right? So mythos is going on, right? It's how whites problematically make sense of blackness in relationship to whiteness. I'm not going to spell all these out in great detail. Codification is the process that, in some sense, the blackness is that code that shapes perception in very predictable ways. Ritualization, in this, in this case, is the, the, in the elevator, is the pulling on the purse, right? It can be a ritualization in a form of, yeah, and I'm the flying nun, let's go nigger. Or walking across the street when you see black folk coming along, right? And ontologization is just a fancy way of me saying that my being is returned to me as that which I don't own. So my being is thrown back to me, flattened out. And my argument is that within the elevator space, whiteness as the transcendental norm is present. So those who've taken any philosophy you know that Kant thinks about space and time as transcendental forms, right? They're conditions for the very possibility of perception. So for me, I'm arguing that whiteness in North America is the transcendental norm. It functions as the conditions under which black bodies are deemed race, strange, peculiar, problematic, criminals, thugs, different, marked, you name it, hypersexual, right? Whereas whiteness remains unmarked, unraced, the norm, right? Now, that transcendental norm, unlike Kant's, it's not a priori, it's not necessary, right? It's contingent, it's deeply historical, and it's a posteriori, right? So this, you see how the, the, the body is being returned to itself, right? Something about the white gaze. I have more of these characterizations of the white gaze, but these are some of them, right? I'm just going to go over two. So there's the gaze, the white gaze is procrustean. Does anybody know where the word procrustean comes from? You guys ever heard that term, procrustean? You guys have ever heard of Prustes, uh, Prostes, um, Procrustes' bed? Procrustes' bed? He's a mythological figure. I think he was the son of Poseidon. Excellent. And what happens is he has this little bed, right? And if you come along, if you're too tall to get you to fit in it, he will lop your limbs off. If you're too short, he'll stretch you. So in essence, the white gaze does this, right? It's procrustean. It fixes the black body in some problematic way, right? Hegemonic, negrophobic. The white gaze is also, which I don't have down here, unless I do, it's, um, eth yeah, I do. It's ethically solipsistic. So in some sense, the white body is the site of morality, the site of ethics, the site of the apex of human history. And then finally, it's also mythomaniacal. Let me just give you an example of that, and then I'll conclude. Mythomaniacal is sort of like this. It's as if I were to write myself a letter, and in the letter I said, Dear Dr. Yancey, I just love you. You smell good, 
You look good. You look good. And I just want to make love to you. Oh, my God, I can't wait. I just can't wait. Right? And then I put my address on it. And I take it to the post office and mail it to me. Right? And when I get it, I open it with all the attendant feelings. Oh, my God, you know, oh, oh he loves me. Oh, great. Oh, you know, and all the attendant experiences of excitement gotten from that. Right? So what does that mean? It means that the white gaze is mytho, mythomaniacal in the sense in which it denies having done anything. So let's, let me give you an example. Why do you think black people fled plantations? I know it's easy, but where, where are the undergrads in here? Undergrad, why do you think black people ran away from plantations? Yeah, you. Yeah. Oh, no, her. Yeah. No, her. <laughs> the white girl. Not all plantations. <laughs> so some were exceptions. <laughs> okay, let me get somebody else to try and answer that question. No, good, good. And somebody else, quickly. Anybody, just answer. Why did black people run? What's that? Slavery. Slavery. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yes. Yes. Sorry. It was a fucked up place to be, right? I mean, come on, guys. You don't want to be on a, a plantation, right? Um, well, guess what? The, the enslavers thought about that, and they said, my God, my cows don't flee. Why is it that black people are fleeing? So he asked this white doctor, Samuel Cartwright, and he said, why do black people flee the plantation? And Samuel Cartwright said, it's because of drapetomania, which is the disease of fleeing plantations. You know, and black people would engage in micro acts of aggression, like they'd step on plants, and you know, within the, you know, you can't overturn the entire plantation, as some tried, at least three, and you'd break a, a tool or something, right? And this was a problem. So, so what's going on? I mean, uh, Samuel Cartwright, tell us why? Why do black people break stuff? And he said, Well, let me look into it. He says, I got it. It's called dysesthesia ethiopica. I said, well, what exactly is that? It's the disease of breaking shit. Right? And he had a solution. What you did is you put a lot of oil on the black body, and you took a big strap, right, leather, and you just hit the black body over and over again to get that oil in the body. Right? So notice what this does. Right? In essence, what it does, it allows the white to create a moment of distanciation between the object and his or her own activity so that the object becomes foreign to the actions, right? So in some sense, I can say it is the body that is the problem, right? Without implicating myself in the dyadic, in this case, construction, right? So let me conclude. Um, what is to be done? What am I to do within this racially charged space? How do I desegregate the experience space within the elevator? Do I enact a disruptive counter-white racist performance? If so, what would this look like? And what if such a performance gets reinterpreted within her racial schema? I could always turn around and state contemptuously, frankly, I don't give a damn about you or your kind. But this would only confirm her fears of the mythical raging, angry black male. In other words, my actions would only increase her feelings of trepidation. I could also strike up a conversation. Look, I'm a philosopher with a PhD. I also attended Yale University, right? No need to fear me. There's the possibility, though, that her white gaze is so fixed that this newly discovered information would not shake her framework. 
Her head might say yes, but her body would say no, and that is quite profound. I could also attempt to trigger a sense of shame. I could say something like, Miss, I assure you that I am not interested in your trashy possessions, and I especially have no desire to humiliate you through the violence of rape, nor are my sexual desires outside of my control. I got those under control. Then again, she could be thinking, nigger, just who do you think you're talking to? This would function as a way of alighting the truth that she felt threatened by what she and other whites daily construct as the black monster, while still maintaining a sense of superiority by questioning that I spoke to her in such an uppity fashion. Then again, what if I have indeed positioned her to feel shame? What if that's the case? What if she leaves the elevator feeling bad about what she did, feeling bad about her whiteness? But what happens when this feeling gets tr quickly transformed into a positive sense of self-discovery? Perhaps she now will make a point of remaining with her shame, wallowing in it as a cleansing agent. Perhaps this shame, as Sarah Ahmed might say, is an unhappy performance once it is uttered in the form, I am ashamed. It is like uttering, I am modest, which can result in undoing itself. What happens when her position as the white shamed one transformed into a place of white narcissism? What happens when being ashamed functions in such a way that it's a false movement of transcendence vis-a-vis -vis whiteness? She becomes no longer concerned with about black pain and suffering or my pain and suffering, but her pain, her guilt, in her need to feel good and pure about herself and ethical. In short, she fails to tarry, to linger with black pain and suffering, and she also fails to tarry with the complexity of her whiteness. What appeared to be a movement toward undoing whiteness is now reinscribed as a place for precisely doing whiteness. And what if the elevator broke down for six hours? What would this do? What would it create? Would it be a space for her death or perhaps her salvation? Or perhaps this is a distinction without a difference. What if she got to know me differently? during those six hours? What if her perceptual practices began to crack, though slightly? Is this not the beginning of a bridge? Perhaps we need more experiences where the spaces that we inhabit break down, like the elevator. Spaces where we get to dwell near each other. Then again, what happens when the elevator starts up again? She returns to a world in which white skin privilege is systemic where her white privilege gets cited, reinscribed, and complicit with white norms, where whites come to live their lives within a frame that they fail or refuse to recognize as a frame, a world in which they continue to find their way. Okay, conclusion, final conclusion. The embedded white racist self. This is kind of new stuff. Many of my white students have difficulty accepting what I call the conception of the embedded white racist. On my view, though, this conception of the embedded white racist self helps them to appreciate, so about five, six more minutes, helps them to appreciate the ways in which they have missed the social ontologically robust ways in which they are not self-relational substances moving through space and time, fully self-present and fully autonomous, etymologically a law unto themselves. Theorized as embedded within a pre-existing social matrix of white power, one that is fundamentally constitutive, though not deterministic, my students are encouraged to think critically about ways in which they are not sites of complete self-possession, right, but sites of dispossession. Part of the meaning of the process of dispossession is that one is not the egological sovereign that governs its own meaning, definition, and constitution. The white embodied self on this score is transitive, already passed over. 
Its being presupposes others, signifying a relational constitution that takes place within the context of material history and situational facticity. The white embodied self is already, always, already constituted through its connectivity to discursive material practices that are fundamentally racist and in terms of which the white self is already consigned a meaning. So one is always already racist at the very beginning because one is already given over to a set of practices. That's my way of collapsing a few paragraphs just then. The opaque white racist self. Just as my, just as my white students have difficulty accepting the conception of the embedded white racist, they resist what I refer to as the conception of the opaque white racist. Most of them rely on the assumption that they can ascertain their own racism through a sincere act of introspection. Let me see if I'm racist. Uh, I didn't use the N-word yesterday. Uh, I have five black friends. I've never done this. I've never done that. Yeah, I'm not a racist. Got it. They assume that if they look deep enough, shine the light of consciousness long enough, that they will be able to ascertain the very limits of their racism. I think that's impossible. Indeed, they assume that the process of ascertaining the limits of one's white racism is guaranteed by an all-knowing consciousness that is capable of peeling back, as it were, various levels of internalized racism and at once discovering a non-racist innocent white core. My question is, is there an innocent white core in white people? And if it is, how do we discover it? Yet I find it problematic, the very conception of the white racist self as fully capable of such levels of epistemic depth. So just as the white subject undergoes white racist interpolation within the context of white racist systemic structures and institutional practices, the white self undergoes processes of interpolation vis-a-vis -vis the psychic opacity of the white racist self. One responds, as it were, to the hail of one's own imminent other, the opaque white racist self. I'm going to skip some of this. More compellingly, perhaps this psychic configuration of white racist opacity has a structural permanence that has no exit. Moreover, it would seem that the attempt to stand outside white racist configurations of embedded systemic power and privilege is also, it also has a kind of structural permanence, no exit. To invoke the discourse of repair or repair or rehabilitation, there is no exit where the problematic white self, the fractured and broken white vessel can be repaired or rehabilitated in toto and from the bottom up. One last paragraph. One must begin with the white racist self. To invoke Rene Descartes' metaphor, one cannot raise everything to the ground and begin again from the original foundations. The white self that desires to flee white power and privilege is precisely the problematic white self of power and privilege. A white self whose desire may constitute a function of that very white power and privilege and narcissism ab initio. Indeed, the white self that desires and attempts to rebuild or rehabilitate itself does so precisely within the context of complex and formative white racist social and institutional material forces and intra-psychic processes. How do we make sense of educare, education, to lead out, given that there are so many complex layers of whiteness through which to navigate? Indeed, what if the effort to undo whiteness completely is like searching for the horizon that forever recedes? In conclusion then, perhaps there is no place called white innocence vis-a-vis -vis the black body as a problem. And if this is so, what are the implications for black bodies and white gazes? Thank you.
Uh, I can do it. Yeah, I can. Yeah, it's fine. Which is, or you can do it. It's up to you. <laughs> oh, assuming that there are any questions. Oh, way in the back. I think maybe we better wait for maybe wait for wait for them to leave. Yeah, I know that book. So it's really a comment. Excellent. So wonderful. If you guys haven't read Michelle Alexander's work, The New Jim Crow, you should. It's, it's a really good book. Um, I mean, it doesn't do philosophy as such, but that's okay. I mean, it's, it's, it's my, I mean, she's, she's, she's doing the, the excellent work that she's doing, right? Whereas I'm, I'm interested in precisely that question, but at the level of the lived phenomenology of it, right? What does it mean for my black body to undergo those experiences, right? And she doesn't do that, but it's right there, right? And there's been some experiments, one I won't mention, I mentioned it during the, during the uh, workshop, but there's one uh, case uh, where it's called, sort, sort of, I'll call it shoot or not to shoot experiment, right? It's an experiment in which basically you get white people uh, to shoot at um, images of whites and blacks. It turns out that whites will shoot more um, unarmed blacks than they will shoot unarmed whites. And in fact, they will hesitate to shoot whites that are armed versus blacks that are, in fact, armed, right? So hesitate in the case of, of, of whites, right? Uh, and there's even studies that have shown, for an example, if you hook up uh, whites to MRI machines, and there's this section of the brain called the amygdala. You guys have heard that section that kind of registers violence, or what is it, the, the, the fright or flight fear, right? So there's this case where they show them, they show whites these images. Uh, at a, um, a millisecond, which is, I guess is a thousandth of a second. And turns out when they show these white cards, I mean, you can't consciously know which you're seeing. Turns out when they see a black card, a card of a black face, there's a lot of neurological activity going on in the amygdala versus when they see a white face, right? So I'm interested in the way in which um, whiteness certainly resides at the institutional level, but I don't, the reason I don't want to, well, I need to say that, but at the same time, what I want to point to are individual bodies, individual white bodies, for an example, that make up this space. Because there are ways in which we can talk about instit institutional dimensions of racism such that it becomes an abstract discussion about, it's institutional, oh, I see, now I got it. No, it's institutional and it's embodied, right? And the way I want to go with embodiment is really quite profound. 
So I'll give you a quick example of, uh, have you guys read the book, Killers of the Dream by Lillian Smith? You guys should read, read that book last week, right? Last year. Um, but she talks about her white experiences. So she gives this case where she and her colleague goes, they go to eat with black people, right? And her colleague, she says, my, my she says that her colleague's conscience was serene, meaning that ethically she knew it was the right thing to do to integrate with black people. But as she sat down to eat with them, she couldn't hold her food. Sitting in the midst of black people put her on the verge of beginning to vomit. Right? So here's this fascinating case where while her conscience was serene, right, something else was going on, which it seems to me that the problem of white racism is not just a problem that is about epistemology. It's not just about holding false beliefs. It's about the way in which your body constitutes a site of white comportment in such a way that even though your conscience is serene, your body battles with it and says, I'm not going to listen to that. Right? So there's a way in which her very body resisted dwelling near black bodies. So the argument is that racism, white racism, is not just ideological, it's just not a cognitive site, it's also a site of embodiment, which means that white racism exists in the way you walk, in the spaces that you dwell in, uh, the way you comport your body, what you hear, what you see, what you smell, right? So that's what I'm interested in, right? And what that means for me, and hence the clicking of the sounds, right? The clickings, I mean, we generally don't think about that. But I've heard many blacks who say they approach the car just kind of walking, right? Not, not running to the car, right? But just kind of walking. They hear the clicks. Well, my, my, um, my philosophical attempt is to give flesh to that, right? What does that say to me? It says to me, nigger, right? It says to me, predator. It says to me, you're up to no good. So I'm interested in the dialectics of that, right? How, through the denigration of the black body, the white body has this kind of purchase on the world that my black body doesn't. Someone else? Um, so thanks for the reference. Yeah, good. Um, when you were saying how your students sort of give you pushback to the idea that white racism is somehow innate, um, I find it really interesting that the first question after you were done is about sort of the system. And do you think that that can then be a part of the idea you were saying about sending the letter out and then getting it back? So oh, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, if you guys have probably read Peggy McIntosh, I mean, anybody who takes an intro to, you know, uh, looking at whiteness, I mean, but, but I mean, Peggy McIntosh is not a philosopher, but her work is very significant, and she's one of those people who were writing in the 90s when this field was, was, was burgeoning, right? Um, and she kind of says, look, what's interesting is she, she defines white racism in a very interesting way, but oftentimes students miss it. She says that in my class and place, I always thought about racism as consisting of what individual mean white people do. So we have this very clear sense of what a racist is. It's the Klan, skinheads, niggers. Nigger, people use the nigger term every day, right? Then she says there are the good whites, right? I mean, she implies that, right? But she says that dichotomy is problematic. She says, in that place and time, I thought about racism in that way, but never in terms of systemic processes that confer 
privilege on me from birth and therefore has implications for the domination of people of color. So getting back to your point, I think by, that by talking about racism as institutional can be a side of obfuscation, where they kind of go, well, yeah, it's out there, it has nothing to do with me. And what she's implying by her definition, and I raised this once with students in my class, I said, you know, predominantly, uh, Duquesne is predominantly white, so I was saying to my white students, you know, what do you think about that definition? And one white student said, I understand that I have white privilege, of course I do. I said, but do you really, I mean, it was, it was very nonchalant, cavalier about it. Of course I have white privilege. But then I said, well, do you get the other part of her definition, that that white privilege has connected to it a kind of oppressive dimension toward people of color? And then he said, well, I don't know about that. Right? Then he started to move back. Right? I'm suggesting that we don't move back. That's precisely the point. So under her construction, believe it or not, she is saying, that if you only think about whites as being racist vis-a-vis -vis those who do horrible things toward black people or people of color, you're limited. The way in which we ought to think about racism is to the extent that you are white, living within the context of North America where whiteness is the transcendental norm and where you benefit from, from, from white privilege, you are a racist. Right? So following her claim, let me just put it out there, Every white in this room is a racist. Now, if I were in that audience, I'd get a little pissed off. I'd say, you gotta be kidding me. I'm not a racist, come on. I'm trying to do my thing, right? I'm going to school. I'm concerned with education. I'm not a racist. Don't use the N-word. Waiting for someone to respond to that. I'm hoping it will do something. <laughs> Go ahead. Say that again. I think we can all acknowledge that prejudice and racism do exist. I hope so. Most of us can't. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Believe it or not, not everybody believes that. But good. Uh, what is your thought about <coughs> like, what do you want us? What do you want us to do? Let me. Let me. Can, can I answer that question very carefully? And the reason I say carefully, this is why. Because oftentimes at the end of a talk like this, and this is not about you, what, what's your name? What is it? Anthony. Okay, this is not about Anthony as such, right? But oftentimes there will be whites in the audience who will, at the end will go, and you kind of go, yeah, okay, go ahead. Okay, can, can you tell me what I should do? Right? Can you, can you get, get, tell me? Right? Now, I'm not saying that to you, right? but I'd like to treat your question within that framework. <laughs> what was that? Okay, so this is Anthony. <laughs> Thank you, that's what we need, Anthony, that kind of vulnerability. So the reason I'm reluctant is because, as I said in the beginning of the talk, I don't want you to leave here feeling hopeful. And that sounds counterintuitive. I don't want you to leave here saying that Dr. Yancey, or whatever you want to call me, maybe that nigger, um, gave me that information, right? Quite frankly, I didn't want to hear it, but also he made me feel good about myself. Right? Now I can leave feeling good. I think I have the tools. Right? And so oftentimes I think the, the immediacy of the hand could also, not that it's going on in Anthony's case, could function as a site of obfuscation as well. Because when the hand goes up and you want the solution, what don't you do? You don't get to do this. Terry. 
right? And I want you to tarry. What does tarry mean? To, to linger, to linger. Did somebody say slow down? That's excellent. I like that. To slow down in the moment, right? Don't seek the answer, right? Now, it's, it comes at great cost, right? Because after all, there are bodies that are suffering precisely because of white racism. And they're not just bodies of color, right? So the point is, though, here, slow down, linger with what was said, right? Without seeking, seeking a solution. Part of the problem is this, there is no algorithm, there is no formulaic solution to the problem. Partly because it is institutional and it is embodied. Right? What would I suggest? What would I say, given this, bless you, given this moment to say something to that? Given this modifier, given that modifier, I would say that you ought to seek in critical spaces, like at Villanova University, that's predominantly white, and therefore it follows that racism must exist here. I think you should try to disrupt those spaces. I think you should try to live in those spaces in ways that you lose your way, which is a concept that I was talking about earlier. Feel out of place here. Go to your classes when there's so many whites in the class and say, what the hell is this? No, I really mean stand up. Why are there so many white people in this classroom? Somebody answer the question. Right? Why are there so many white people when I go home for Christmas? Right? Or when I watch television? Right? So, I mean, but within the context of this space, I think you should mark whiteness as strange. Let it show its face for what it is. Right? Pervasive and normal and normative. And it doesn't see itself as a problem. And I'm suggesting that when, there are, when there's a space like this where there are a predominant number of whites, more whites, a lot of whites, that's a problematic space. It's a space of ignorance. It's a space of pleasure. It's a space of safety. It's a space of normalcy. It's a space of degradation. So I say disrupt those spaces as much as you can. Right? And of course, disrupt the ways in which you sort of understand yourself, right? which means you guys need more people of color at the university. <coughs> right? If it were a place where there were, oh, that's nice. That doesn't usually happen. Wow. Boy, clapping, that's nice. Um, so if it was a place like where they're all men, you know, you kind of, oh, the majority of men, we'd say, we got to get more women here, guys. But, absolutely, oh, <laughs> that one too, right? Great. Because look, I mean, let's, let's, let me say something. I mean, when I was talking about, um, I, was, I don't know if women, I don't know if any woman here wants to disclose that she got my point about um, this idea of having your body thrown back to you, right? It's quite incredible. Believe it or not, I mean, we're, we're such a pathetic and deeply pr problematic society, right? That, I mean, look, um, oh, maybe, okay, maybe I have to slow down. But... Sexism becomes a, a, an issue, right? We can also talk about M. Crow in terms of sexism. This is a really good model for thinking about sexism. Mythos, the myths that men bring to you, the way in which your body shapes our perception. Ritualization, stuff that we say, as I said in the workshop, ooh, look at that ass. That's a really nice ass. I like to tap that ass, right? You guys will never hear a philosopher say that in public, right? Uh, and then ontologization, 
the way in which your body as a woman is thrown back to you. Have you ever felt that as a woman? I'm asking the women. Give me a yes. Good. When a, when a man asks you that question, guys, you want to scream that out? So men may bring your body back as something ontologically problematic, right? And I'm thinking here of little Wayne recently who says, I'm going to beat that pussy like Emmett Till. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? I mean, Mike, I mean, first the image and the memory of Emmett Till. Then what the hell does it mean to beat a pussy like that? But that's the discourse within which we live, right? We're also in a culture where black men can be rented to sleep with your white wife. You can go online and find us. We're there. You get to sit while we screw your wife, right? In terms of pornography, anybody know what the, like, the best-selling pornography is? Interracial, black men on white women. Guess who's buying it up? White men. So there's something to be said there, too, as a site to disrupt. Apparently, there's, unfortunately, there's no new Jim Crow. I don't know what to call it. New sex crow, I don't know what to call it, but anyway. Uh, way in the back, and then over here. Yeah. And I want to say, from what you're saying, I'm persuaded of that, given the systemic blah 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 blah. But there appears to me to be a deeper still in movement to the systemic. And that takes me, at least, back to use the language of the Greeks and the tragedians and to talk about the tragic hero. Okay. So we try, and I know that the workshop... Oh, I see. I'm optimistic. Oh, I see. Sure. <laughs> right. For those who were there, right. equally important to think about not simply the systemic, because if we do that, then I can get on top of that, well, and I can work through it. Yeah, I agree. Well, kind of. Well, yeah, 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 I know, but that's, that's okay. I've been doing, you know, doing this stuff, and it's fun. Okay. But the other part, <laughs> we keep, as you had said, and as we know, we're not arrival. We haven't arrived. This is stuff that we guys, but these are terms that you guys didn't hear, some of you that weren't here, but go ahead. Yeah. Sorry, earlier. But, but it's the process, and maybe the process is, as the Greeks put it in our white souls, and by extension to the culture that is Western culture, perhaps we are the tragedy that only Jerusalem, as it were, or the Middle East can take us away from. Well, not sure about that part. I'm not sure about that last but, reference. But, but the well, let me say something. Well, I, let me just pick up on this. I mean, yeah, I mean, it is tragic, right? I mean, I, I, do, I do think that, that, that we need something, as I said earlier. I, this, this was language that was brought up, by, by the way, for you guys who weren't there, um, in the, the, um, the workshop. So I made this claim about it wasn't about arrival. It was about process, right? And I, I question whether or not when it comes to, in fact, my, my sense is that the best that whites can achieve is this. To be anti-racist racists, right? 
putting em emphasis on this part again. Right? Now I could spell that all out, right? <laughs> if it was a class, we'd have more time, right? I could really do like a nice song and dance on that, right? So that's, that's the best that you can achieve, right? Because there is no arrival, quite frankly, right? Um, but I, to, to use some of those metaphors, I think, I think something like walking from Jerusalem to Jericho <laughs> might be an important place to walk, right? For those who are in theology, probably know more about this than I do, but I'm playing with it, right? Because that's a dangerous space. That's a place where you get your ass kicked, right? And not literally there, right? But I don't mean literally getting your ass kicked. I just mean having your psyche screwed with, right? This sense of disorientation that I talked about earlier, right? And at the end of it, we know what happened, right? In that parable, it was somebody named, who was it? It was the good Samaritan, right? Of all people who came to the rescue of that individual, who should not have done that, quite frankly. So we're assuming that the guy who was mugged was probably Jewish, right? That's what's so profound about it. So my sense is that that's a case, a very profound case of dwelling near, of being a neighbor. And as I said during the talk, we don't dwell near each other. We just don't, and I can give you a talk about that. It goes back to homesteading, it goes back to the New Deal, that talks about racial segregation, why we don't physically live together. But psychically, we don't reside, reside together, right? On this case, this, I'm going to get you in a minute, this question of Trayvon Martin, the, whether or not that case had racial implications. About 78% of what blacks said it did, about 20 or so percent of whites, sorry, blacks said it did, 20% of whites said basically it, it did. Very few, right? So as Richard Wright says, whites and blacks in this case, and I'm sorry if I'm excluding any other identities because we have to open up that discussion too and just not talk about binaries, um, we live a million psychological miles apart, he says, right? But it is tragic. It's comic, right? But at the same time, it seems we, we don't need this guy, maybe. Do we need him to do the work, right? Do we need Neo? Who is Neo? You know, yeah, Neo. He's the one. Is that who we're looking for to solve the problem? Maybe we need to say to hell with Neo, right? He's not going to do it for us, right? Something else has to happen, it seems to me. Um, because I'm not sure where he's going to come from, first of all. I just don't know. He's going to be tainted. I'm not sure if he can ever get outside the matrix, if we want to use that language, right? There's no blue and red pill that can make that difference for white people. If it were, that would be excellent, right? But there is no such thing, right? Um, so there's something about what we have to do in our daily lives to disrupt the normalcy of whiteness, to disrupt, and as I said earlier, or maybe I didn't say this earlier here, but for me, there's a very low threshold for being racist. All it takes is that you do nothing, right? Just to be white, right? To be white in the world is sufficient to be a racist. Mixed race. Ah, good. Can you, can you tell me, is your mom, just tell me. Yeah, that leaves you, it leaves you in a very bizarre place, right? A liminal space, right? A liminal space. And of course, there's been a lot written on the, the tragic mulatris, right? I don't know if you use the term mulatto. It's a tricky, it's a tricky term um, because the term comes from mule. And a mule is a product of a donkey and a horse. 
And you know, it was believed that mules were, well, not believed, but what are mules? What is distinctive about mules? They're sterile. So it was believed, believe it or not, that if whites and blacks got together, the product would be sterile. Um, I think that's an excellent question. I mean, there's been a lot of literature written on that. Um, Naomi Zak, for example, is written on that, uh, in, in as much as she's a, a, a mixed-race person. Um, there's a one guy, I can't remember his name, maybe you guys know his name, it's called The Browning of America. Uh, Ronald, I can't think of his last name, but Browning of America would be an, an interesting question, I mean, an interesting text to look at. I think that you know, I've had, I've had students who are mixed race in my classes. One white kid said, one, one inter, uh, mixed kid said to me that when he goes and I'm, I'm only relating experiences now as a way of building up to what do I say to you. He says that when he's in the store with his dad, who's black, he's followed. When he's in the store with his white mother, he's not followed, which is quite incredible, right? One other student who is mixed race, said that one day she was in a store with her mom, who's white, and she went and grabbed her wallet, her mom's wallet, out of her backpack. And the white people around went to grab her because they thought that she was robbing this white woman, when in fact it was her mom, right? So it's a peculiar place to be. I mean, what, what, do, I say, what do I say to this, right? I mean, being mixed race, does not allow, I'm just going to say it this way, right? And then if someone else want to jump in and talk about this, please do. Does not allow, in my mind, as, as problematic as this might sound, one's parents off the proverbial hook of racism, right? Although that's kind of hard to think, to say of one's white parent, that that white parent has privileges that I don't have, right? But in America, right, to the extent that you are mixed race, the one-drop rule still applies. You're black, right? And so I have some mixed-race students who will say things like, well, I'm mixed-race, you know, as if somehow they can move through life and move through social spaces without having their bodies problematized, right? So as long as the white gaze is operating, it still sees you as black, right? But I think there's a way in which your very identity, one might argue, um, sort of speaks at one level to, to, that, to that sort of grand uh, taboo narrative, right, of those differences and how they must be separated. So in many ways, your identity disrupts that binary in a fundamental way, right? But can a mixed-race person still be racist? Of course. This one mixed-race kid said to me that there are times when he feels so divided that he will think with whites when he's thinking about his white side, then this might be a, a product, of course, of our schizophrenic society, that he feels better than blacks, which is quite incredible, right, when one of his parents is, is black, right? So it's a peculiar place to, to be, right? I would, like, I would like to hear more about what you have to say about your own mixed identity and the way in which you might be prepared to spell the phenomenology of that experience out. Because in many ways, you're going to be different. Your experiences will be a bit different from mine, right? Because there are whites, and it's been shown, of those who look more like them, because you could pass, I think. There are whites, the data suggests that whites who are around people who look more like them 
find them more acceptable. Right? So in many ways, you would be more acceptable to whites. But at the same time, you don't want that identity that you identify as black somehow erased. Right? So many mixed-race students will often find themselves in this, this way of thinking, well, you know, I'm not accepted. Again, I'm in this liminal space. I'm getting trouble from whites, and I'm getting trouble from blacks. I mean, blacks are telling me I'm not black enough. Whites are telling me I'm not white enough, right? But I don't want to end in with that kind of tragic. That's, again, the tragic Malatris narrative, right? I want to say that you complicate things by your very identity. And I think that's an important thing, right? Um, <laughs> Sorry, uh, what can I... Mm. I called him by name, and you had yeah, no true. until I reminded that's you true. and told you, and you said, oh, I didn't know he was black. That's right. And I says, I wonder why. Mm. And we both said, it's because I am white. Yeah. So I, I, I need this for this student yeah. to understand that what? this is all of us. Yeah, sure. No, absolutely. But, be, but before, it's the, before the end, I'd I like to use say something about what you want to say in a context like this. I, I, no, no, you. Sorry, what's your name? Mariah. Yeah, Mariah. I'd like for you to, Mariah, I'd like for you to say something about something, right? What, what, how do you see the, the discussion that we're having, and how do you see your place? And if you don't mind just thinking about that while I go over here. Someone had a question over here. Two, you go first. Go ahead. Excellent. You guys get that question? That's a profound question, right? A question that many whites will go, damn, that's good. Give it to him, right? And I'm not saying that that's how you're motivated. I want to I answer, answer it this way, publicly. I don't think they have a damn thing to do about it, with it. Nothing. They have nothing to do with the perpetuation of the image of the black body as a monster. Absolutely nothing. They mean the black Absolutely. What do you mean the majority of murders that are committed by the black population? Spell that out. Spell it out. Okay. 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 Well, you got. You're gonna have to bring your statistics next time. Okay. Okay. You're gonna have to look. You're gonna have to look that up. That's not true. Look. Look. Look the data. Check. Check your data. But you guys get his point, right? Let's let's speak to his point. I'm gonna I'm gonna speak to that as clearly as I can, because it's so important, right? When, when I wrote that piece for the, the New York Times, The Stone, over and over and over again, there was someone who said, Dr. Yancey, you're critiquing the wrong people. You need to critique black people, because they are eight times more likely to commit a crime, 93% uh, of the murders uh, that black people commit are, are toward black people. Roughly 84% of white people kill other white people. But oftentimes we talk about black on black crime, 
But that's enough to talk about white-on-white crime, right? And if we think about whites who came here and lived in slums, right, turn of the century, there was a hell of a lot of crime going on there. Whites were killing each other left and right. But guess what? The nation deemed them worthy enough. You guys ever heard of Jane, Jane, Jane Adams, that first uh, social worker? She went in and made sure that those white people had social workers, had sort of building an e economic structure. There were police officers in that space to help these people, right? And also, the nation saw them as part of, saw them metaphorically as being on a ship that we are part of. So I'm saying black people, when they engage in crime, are looked upon somehow differently. In fact, the, the, the saying is that white people commit crimes, black people are criminals, which is an ontological claim about black bodies. And the reason why I don't want to concede to that, or the reason why I don't even want to admit that, because you can see where it's going. Because the moment I say that black people contribute to their own demonization, that lets whites off the proverbial hook, right? What I'm saying is that prior to those stats, right, the white gaze was operative. I mean, when Kant said that to be black from head to toe is clear proof that what one says is stupid, there weren't black slums. When Hume said that I was a parrot, there weren't black slums. When Hegel says there's no Geist, there weren't black slums. When the first American edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica came out in the 1700s, there were no black slums, and guess what it said? If you wanted to look up the meaning of Negro, it said this was a person who was nasty and given to stealing and debauchery, right? So the white gaze vis-a-vis -vis the black body is a, sight, is a problem, as a criminal black body precedes those stats, right? And my argument is that if you think about where black people live on top of each other, the way in which their bodies have been segregated, the way in which their bodies have been marginalized into these pathological spaces, right? Let African people have gone to European countries, right? Let us take your people, let us oppress them. We will rape your women. We will tell you that you're stupid, dumb, ignorant, and ugly. That you have the wrong kind of noses, those thin, nasty noses that you guys have, that pasty skin, it's nasty. That stringy hair, get rid of it, right? The way you guys make love, it's crazy, right? It's just dumb, you don't even know how to do it. You're at the very bottom of human history. And let's say we took you and we enslaved you, right? We lynched you, we, we severed your penis and stuck, stuffed it in your mouths, right? And then we put you in these places, right? Through the Homestead Act, 1862, where millions of acres of land were given to white people for free, pushed the eastern Native Americans to the western side of Mississippi. Well, first there was the Indian Removal Act of 1830, and then you had the Homestead Act. And then think about in the 30s, between 1934 and 1962, when $120 billion was given to white people, that the government then 
underwrote, if you will, the relationship between poverty and wealth, poverty and race, poverty and loan eligibility, so that between 1960 and 1977, four million white people were able to leave the inner cities to the suburbs, 0.5 million blacks left, so that 86 of the four million by 1993 whites were living in a highly segregated area where there was only one black in those neighborhoods. If you treat black bodies in that way, what do you expect to get? So my sense is that when a black person commits a crime, I'm suggesting what David Hume might say, that you guys are kicking up the dusk and then claiming you can't see. I'm saying you're living with the product that you've created. I'm saying what James Baldwin has said, I give you your problem back. You're the nigger baby, it ain't me. So I'm saying no, black people don't contribute to that image. Is there violence in black communities? Who's gonna doubt that? Is there pathology in black communities? Who's gonna doubt that? But then there's pathology in American society, right? There's all of that in, in, in the American context, right? But I don't want to use that, right? Because it's not black people are, that are creating that. That image is superimposed on them, right? That comes from the white gaze. And let's just think about this point, too. Think about the war on drugs, right, with Ronald Reagan. And he made that declaration, I think, in 1982. It's a declaration that we're going to carry out a, a war on drugs. Does anybody know when crack cocaine hit the streets? Around that time, 1985. Guess which streets it hit? Black inner city spaces. Guess what the CIA disclosed recently? That they knew that the war that was going on in Nicaragua, that money was being used to support the rebels from the sale of crack cocaine. And they knew about networks of drug dealing that they themselves didn't look into. So you got a black woman now walking around trying to suck a dick for $1.25, and she's said to be a, a site of pathology. Bullshit. You created that. That's my answer to that. <laughs> well, let me tell you how it feels to me. It feels heartfelt because... I agree, I agree. I definitely get that. I mean, it, it, for, for me, it would be like men oppressing women, and then women start doing things counter to that. And then all of a sudden, we say something like, well, but yeah, but you women, you guys sexualize us too. I mean, I, this is a bad analogy, right? But I'm thinking about a system of hegemony where we then blame it on those who are, who are oppressed by it. And then when they start to do things that are problematic, we then blame them. Yes, <laughs> thank you. Mm. Thank you for saying that. Yes. Yes, thank you. Yes, so it's, a, it's, it's, it's not an exact analogy, but the point is there, right? In some sense, they, look, if a woman walks in front of us and her ass cheeks are hanging out, right, and her breasts are showing, what do we do? Well, 
we have a few options, right? But one thing we don't do, we don't rape her, we don't touch her, right? We can't do that. She's not, we don't care what, in fact, even if she's saying, take me, we have a responsibility not to take her. Because why should we be fuckers when society has already positioned us always as fuckers? When you go to any pornography shop, if you look at Susie and she's wearing a cowgirl hat and cowgirl boots and she's in doggy style, what is she saying to me? Fuck me, Dr. Yancey. I don't even need to know your name. Just give it to me. But I don't want to be a fucker. And I'm tired of society saying that I am one. And because I'm a black male, I'm a really powerful fucker. <laughs> but all males in this space, in this space right now, should be offended by the way in which pornography positions us as so avaricious, right, as the fuckers. That's all we want to do. And if not careful, we will rape you, quite frankly, right? Because you asked for it, right? And if you're a woman, you ought to be angry, to say the least, all the way in the back. Mm. Well, that's a good question. Um, I, I'm, I'm really shy, and I'm not joking. I'm really shy. Um, but there's something about, you know, we, we kind of play a role when you're in your teaching mode. It's, it's, it's a different kind of performance. Um, so it took time, obviously, right? I mean, I was the kind of grad student who didn't want to stand up at all and talk. So I, I avoided being a TA, always. In fact, I only taught during my, when, my, when I got hired. It's the only time I ever taught, right, which was scary. And then, yes, I have been called a racist. Um, I've, I've been told that I hate white people. Um, now I'm not prepared to give any confessions here. I don't need to do that. But um, it's interesting that, that, that I've been told, because you talk in such generalizations about white people, you yourself must be a racist, right? And I've been also been called an angry black man. Right? which pretty much places everything that I say under erasure. 